Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. I've known Cory Booker for more than 15 years, long before he was elected the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, or the junior senator from the Garden State, back in the days when everyone said he would be president one day. Well, Senator Booker is running for president now, but he hasn't caught fire. Yet the candidate says not to worry about that. So we talked about why he believes that, his vision for the country, and the issues that drive him. And no moment was more searing than when he talked about his personal experiences with gun violence. These are kids who deserve the best of America, but they've seen the worst of it. Hear more of Senator Cory Booker right now. Senator Cory Booker, welcome to the podcast. I, it's welcome to Newark. Yeah. I shouldn't say welcome to Newark. Welcome back to Newark. We have known each other for maybe 15 years. Yes. So I'm just going to call you Cory. Please. No, I please just can't do not, do the whole do not call me. Do you do Senator that with other people? Do you call them by their titles? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you worked hard for that title. Yeah. Unbeknownst to folks who are listening, our history goes back so far as when you were trying to convince me to leave New York City... And come back to Newark. Your pitch to me was, I'm going to run for mayor of Newark, and I want you to be my press secretary. (laughs) Newark-born goes off to New York and comes back home to help turn around the city. And I said no. You did. You shut me down pretty firmly. And look at you now. Look at Your life has just been not what it could have been. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, look, at the time, you, you, what were you doing before you ran for mayor? I was a city council That's right, you were in the city council. And you ran against Sharp James. In this epic clash that became an Oscar-nominated movie, but that that lost to... Street Fight. I'll say it before he does. Thank you very much. Lost (laughs) to March of the Penguins, (laughs) Um, which is (laughs) shameful. Um, But it was all about that that tough fight, which comes back now more than you would think because people keep asking me, are you tough enough to fight <laughs> Donald Trump? And I sort of laugh. I go, please understand what I've been through. If anybody in this field to rise against the machine in Newark where I had death threats and tires on my car slash intimidation tactics. I say this in many ways is not a, not a fight that's beyond me. All right. And we'll get to the fight with President Trump yes. in a little bit. But I do want to stick with Newark because one of the last times we had the conversation about you're trying to lure me back to Newark to work on the campaign, it was right after the second run for mayor, your first successful run where Senator Corzine had won election as governor. And that was when there was gubernatorial appointment to the Senate. And I had heard through my sources that he wanted to appoint you to that Senate seat. And one more time, you made the pitch. And I said, look, Corey, if you want me to work for you, you take that Senate seat. I'll move to Washington tomorrow and be your press secretary. (laughs) And you said no. And you said no because you made a commitment to Newark to the people you met in the first run. Can you tell that story? Look, when I first ran against the machine and came close, it was a weird point because often the machine then wants to kind of co-opt you. And the way that they wanted to do that was to try to figure out big political deals to move me out, move me along, county executive. There was some talk about the seat that Menendez would have, was eventually appointed to. But um, this is my loyalty. I mean, my dream was to be a mayor and to show that we could take a city that people had disrespected, disregarded, looked down upon, where there was the toughest problem of the world going on here. And that's what I wanted to do. That's what I dreamed of doing. This conversation happened after I lost in 2002, which for me, you know, was bad. But there were people who supported me in that election that had their lives under assault from small businesses, I still remember this one bar that as soon as the election was over, the mayor sent alcohol beverage commission there and, you know, virtually shut it down. People who had put my lawn signs up suddenly had summonses for cracks on the sidewalk. But what blew me away, talk about people, is that everybody I talked to said, Corey, if I had the chance, I would do it all over again. Um, We will stand with you. And It was almost like people were saying to me, we won't give up on you. Do not give up on your dream. Do not give up on this city. And that's sort of the story. Like I lived in these in brick towers or right down the road from these high rise projects I lived in because the woman who first got me elected to city council made me make this commitment. We elect people to office and then they leave or they move away. Commit yourself to this community. And so I said, well, I will commit myself to the community and I will move into the projects as well. 
why am I the only United States senator that lives in a low-income black and brown mm-hmm. uh, community below the poverty line? We're still we made a lot of advancements in this community. I'm so proud of new schools, new housing, supermarkets, and food deserts. But I will I'm loyal to the community that gave me my first shot in politics, and my whole view, even at the presidential debate stage, is all about the issues of those communities that are left behind, often forgotten. That's why we've talked about child poverty. 170 plans of presidential candidates were the only one that put forward something like that. That's why we're talking about housing so much. So I'm honored that I live here. This is my home upstairs. As Rosario would say, she never, um, I'm not sure if she knew that, especially those New York arrogance that she has, <laughs> that she would be, you know, dating a guy in Newark and and, and right. be, be here, falling in love with my community as as she does, but this is special. This is the soil that I was planted in, and I'm going to stay loyal to the community that gave me a shot. What was Rosaria Dawson, the actress? What was her reaction when you when you brought her here for the first time? First of all, you know that there's this New York, New Jersey. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> so she is proudly New York. I mean, her whole. She was literally discovered sitting on a stoop as a teenager for the movie Kids. Mm-hmm. So she is like she wears her New York. Uh, on her sleeve. And yet, I think one of the reasons, and I wish she was here for this part of the interview, that she fell in love with me, her thing to me all the time is I wish America could see what I see, that this, once she understood this, sort of the connection I had to community, why I make the choices I made, I think it flipped the relationship. I think she and I both had that experience where we both saw each other from afar and then when we saw each other, what we do with our private time, what we do with our lives. Like, we had a night just recently when we finished with the campaign and the plane was landing early and she was on the plane with me from Iowa. And I said to her, I go, look, I haven't seen my mentees in the longest time. And this might sound strange to you, but my, we love going shopping together. So my mentees, I said, can we, can the, can the boys be in the car when we land and can we go to Whole Foods all together? And we all shop. And it's actually an instructive moment when you take Oh, see, Corey, when you say shopping, I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like clothes I, shopping, <laughs> shoes shopping. No, you meant grocery shopping. I just want to say that Jonathan has always been, since I've known him, this is like not about a me. fine looking brother who is, who's like, I wish people could see you I'm right in now. a jacket and tie. So anyway, but, back to you but what I'm point is I'm, so, I'm making right. is that like for her, Rosario Dawson, the one that adopted an 11 year old out of foster care who loves going to the girls club in lower Manhattan. I mean, what she does with her personal time so aligns with how I live in my personal life. That's, I think, what connected to both of us. And she loves Newark now. She's, you know this because you're from this city and you're a sophisticated New Yorker, DC man. This is, there's something special about the bricks. There's something special about that's Brick the, City. That's the nickname, Brick, Brick City. City. Yeah, and um, the authenticity, the realness you know, going to a barbershop here for me is not to get my hair cut, obviously. Um, it is it is cultural therapy. It is spiritual energizing to me. I just love my community. And folk don't take me seriously here mm-hmm. uh, when you walk around. But we understand what the work America still has to do. And it's just wonderful to be here. I want to pick up on something that you said that um, Rosario said about you. I yeah. wish people could see what I see. And I wanted to ask, for as long as I've known you, there has been this, oh, my God, this guy is going to be president one day. And there's there's been this that aura around you, even before the first run for mayor. And now you're running, you're sitting senator, you're running for president, and you're at 2% nationally in the Real Clear Politics polling average. Um, The latest poll out of Iowa has you at 2%. In South Carolina, where the black electorate is 60% of the vote, you are at 2%, and that's in the Monmouth poll. Just broadly speaking, why aren't you catching fire? Again, you have that aura of, like, this guy is going to be president. You open your mouth and people swoon. Why not now? So, first of all, I don't know. I can't answer that question. I'm not going to punditize on that, if that's a word. Um, But I will say this. Nobody from the Democratic Party in our lifetime has ever gone from leading in the polls this far out to be president of the United States. In fact, if you're leading in the polls right now, you kind of worry because it's never been a ticket to the presidency. The people who do win are exactly like me. They're behind in the polls. Carter at 1% around this time. I think Bill Clinton was around 4%. Right now, Barack Obama was behind Hillary Clinton and black voters in South Carolina, 21 points behind her overall. They were all considered long shots. 
the, the, what they do have is a few things. One is they've been the more unifying candidates, a message about our commonalities, our common purpose. They actually talk about our higher values. Carter, after Nixon, was talking about a return to decency and to grace in our country. Obama, about hope. The other thing they have is the ability to organize in those early primary states in ways that can win. And I think it's the reason why John Kerry was polling at 4%, low single digits, went on to win. And so when you ask me about what the metrics I'm concerned about right now, they're definitely not polling in South Carolina this far out. It's much more about the organizing we're doing in Iowa. And this is, again, objectively, Des Moines Register, Iowa starting line. When they talk about the best teams on the ground in Iowa, they'll talk about Elizabeth Warren and mine. Talk to local elected leaders, people that like me, I was a city councilperson, a mayor, the people in those caucus rooms that come in with a lot of connection to people. When they stand up for you, people will listen. So the number one candidate, number one and two candidates leading in endorsements of local leaders in Iowa and New Hampshire is me and Elizabeth Warren. So we we have a lot of uh, uh, assets, so to speak, going into an upset in Iowa. And the challenge for us has been fundraising this whole campaign. It continues to be. It's why we, every chance I get, I say CoreyBooker.com. <laughs> Please go to it if you believe in me. But I believe that we have a message that this country more and more is going to choose as we get closer and closer. And that message has to be about those ideals of the urgency in this country for us to have a revival of civic grace, to begin to understand that we have a crisis in this nation of not being able to get things done that we agree on, from gun safety reform to climate change to even just the fact that most Americans have a strong conviction, both sides of the aisle, that we can't have a nation where you can't afford your prescription drugs, where childcare is unaffordable. There's so much that we agree on that other countries are now beating us on that we've got to figure out how do we begin to get back to leading on these issues from education to infrastructure. And so I think that the candidate who can best call this country again to, to our common purpose and common cause is the one that's going to win. And that's why that's been the theme of my campaign from the beginning. Well, one reporter was telling me that like they've seen lots of different campaigns sort of change and evolve over time. We've remained consistent from the beginning. And by the way, if that's not what people want, then fine. But I know two things. One is we do best as a nation when it's not partisan majorities, but new American majorities. That's when we take leaps, when we mobilize to overcome filibusters on civil rights. That became not a partisan issue. It became a new American consciousness almost on civil rights, women's rights, workers' rights, were all those kind of coalitions. When we mobilized to beat the Nazis, it became a national mobilization bigger than any partisanship. When we mobilized to beat the Russians, when they put Sputnik up, it was broader coalitions with hidden figures, black women sitting at the same table figuring things out with white male astronauts. This is one of those moments where I think everybody talks about beating Donald Trump. Pundits tell me that's the number one thing Democratic voters want. Well, yeah, that is what they want. Well, you know what? I'd say this. Beating Donald Trump is the floor. It's not the ceiling. It gets us out of a valley. It doesn't get us to the mountaintop. We're not going to win this election, the Democrats, by, based upon what we're against. We need to inspire this country about what we're for. And, and that's the kind of candidate I want to be. And then the second thing, just on practical politics, Jonathan, I do love data, political data, analyze the data. This is what I know. People talk about electability all the time, and they're wrong, I think, when I hear pundits start talking about that elusive voter that voted for Barack and then voted for Trump, and that's what this election is about. I'm like, no. <laughs> this election to me is about a couple groups. One is one of the most critical constituencies in this race is African-Americans. Oh, you don't have to tell me and you don't have to tell this audience because right. it is. And I'm almost astonished that you and I, you may be talking, I may be talking about when I watched Pundits Night Before I Go to Bed, I can't understand why people don't get that we Are you lost. watching Fox? What's it? Uh, <laughs> just, just First of all, I do flip there from time to time and do it as long as I can take it. <laughs> it reminds me when I was in football, you had to jump in the ice bucket as uh -huh. long as you could take it, then you had to jump out. Well, that's longer than me. But uh, go on, well, Senator. Sorry. Well, look, we, we lost Wisconsin. 7,000 votes? I can't remember. It was 11 or 7. I can't remember one of those two numbers. Milwaukee alone, when I was out there last, sit meeting with local organizers, they were like, we had a, about a seventy to 80,000 drop from 2012 to 2016 of African-American voters. In Wayne County, Detroit, it was the same thing. This mass, in fact, I knew that the Secretary Clinton's campaign knew this because 
the weekend before the election, I was getting ready to go down to uh, Florida, and suddenly they call an audible and move me to the last weekend. I'm in I'm in Detroit. Uh-huh. Every black surrogate, I'm not joking, from from Barack Obama all the way down to black artists and activists, we were all in Michigan. Because what happened? There was over 100,000 less African-Americans coming out to vote. And we lost that state by what? 20,000 votes? 30,000 votes? Mm -hmm. And on that point, just the example that you used, that in the last weekend before Election Day, all of a sudden, black people in the Democratic Party are swarming the state. And everything that I keep hearing, especially now, is from black voters, is... Why, you only come to us yes. when, when you need our votes, and it's usually at the last minute, and then you go away. You disappear. Well, let me double down on this, because I'm one of those folks, again, the only person in this race not only lives in the black community, but represented majority black constituencies as mayor, that we have some shame in our party about the lack of focus on African-American constituencies. And I'm not just talking about 1994 crime bill. When I was elected to the Senate... As the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the Senate, I like to remind people. And the first one from New Jersey. First one from New Jersey. I get down there and I'm astonished that it is the least diverse place I have ever worked. And and I'm talking about poking my head into the Judiciary Committee. I didn't get on it right away. And not being able to see one black staffer on the Judiciary Committee. There, There were so few blacks in positions of power on Senate staffs. And here we are, I could count, tell you the senators that, that must have big black turnouts mm-hmm. in order to get elected. And so I, I went to Schumer, and I got to give Brian Schatz a shout out on this because he was my partner on this, and just said, Chuck, this is a crisis that there are not black people, Latino people, Asian Americans, and even women. The gender diversity was appalling to me. And Chuck, to his credit, was like, "Let's what can, more can we do? And so we established the Rooney Rule now in mm-hmm. Senate. That's good that you have to interview a, a diverse person for a job. But even more importantly, as I found out as a manager of a big city, people will do what you're being measured for. So I said, Chuck, force every Democratic senator to publish the numbers of black people, Latino people, women they have on their staffs and position of power. So long story short is we changed the rules. Now the number of blacks, Latinos, people of color are going up, women up in positions of authority. And my point to you by saying that is, yeah, I'm a, I'm a black guy in a black community. We look at the Democratic Party and say, do you authentically have our back too? When you are negotiating that big deal, are the concerns of diverse people at the table in a central way? And so for me, that's real. And as a guy who has was asked by so many people to campaign for them that has been sent to cities and had black ministers come up to me because they see me as one of their own. You know, they, they conceal that I'm authentically from their, a community like theirs and have them say exactly what you said to me is, why does this party only show up when they need our votes, but not when we proactively, when we have real issues in these communities that don't seem to be addressed? And so one of my favorite candidate forums, and there have been incredible historic forums, I got misty-eyed when I was sitting there at the LGBTQ forum and seeing something that when I first, second flag I raised in this city was the pride flag in 2006 and got vroom, hate for mm-hmm. it. So to see us go from 2006 when I was elected the mayor to now having a major forum where every candidate was tripping over themselves to make sure they were there. One of my favorite forums was one of the most disappointing ones. When you, again, have a field with, I think there's 132 people running for president of the Democratic <laughs> Party. <laughs> um, where 19, 19. <laughs> I think I have no idea. I'm losing track. <laughs> I heard somebody dropped out the other day. I'm like, oh, I didn't know they were still. <laughs> um, and and so it was the forum in front of formerly incarcerated people, and three candidates showed up. And at the end, as I'm watching this room full of folks, and by the way, if you and I did an experiment outside of my, I did this once. I think it was vice cameras or somebody. And I said, every person we stop, let's ask them. Every man, have you ever been arrested? And couldn't find somebody that had had not been. So if you're in communities like mine, people are getting arrested for things that we saw people do in college all the time. And here's a group of formerly incarcerated people. And, and I, I said to them in my, in my remarks, I said, look, we have not done what we should do to earn your vote as a party. You are right to be suspicious, to be skeptical. And whoever is going to be the next president of the United States better have an authentic connection to the issues and the concerns of this population. And so that's why I think 
We cannot win. There is no pathway through the swing states without record turnouts of African-Americans. Because people, I can go through the people that will get 90 plus percent of the black vote. That's not the question. Anybody at this table right now, we've got there's four of us sitting around this table, <laughs> can get 90% of the African-American vote running from the Democratic Party. The question is, is what the turnout is going to be. Will we have record turnouts or not? And so whoever is the nominee better be able to engage the full enthusiasm uh, energy of the Democratic Party. And if you can't, you should not be running for president. And that's basically the thesis of the op-ed that you wrote in Essence magazine, the magazine geared towards and published by African-American women. But that being said, and yes. everything that you just said, what does it mean that the top tier candidates are all white, over 70, Biden, Warren, Sanders, and then if you want to throw in Mayor Pete to bring down the age average because you know he's surging in Iowa, why do you think that is? And why do you think African Americans are the ones who are buoying Vice President Biden in the number one spot? So number one, let's just when you say somebody's surging in Iowa, my my I just talked to one of my door knockers this morning who said to me, every door he went to, even people that had like one candidate, who I won't name itself, one is like, no, I'm still open. I haven't made my decision yet. The polls even reflect that. Over 80% of people in Iowa haven't made their choice. Nobody's surging right now. I think folks are still trying to filter through all the stuff that's going on. So let's, again, just give you the caveat that every okay. this is wide open. And, okay. and again, I'll give you the caveat that Biden may have 50% of black voters in South Carolina. Hillary Clinton did as well, and she got beat by Barack Obama there by the time it got to that point. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you right now, this is the only punditizing I'm going to do. I finish in the top three in Iowa. We come around to South Carolina, and as a guy who grew up going down there, my family's from that area, I will win South Carolina if I do well in Iowa. But again, back to the original yes, question. Leave, leave aside the surging yes, in yes, Iowa. Yes. But the, Sanders, Warren, Biden, what does it mean or what does it say to you that the top tier are all white people, given what you said and what you're saying. In the I, I just piece. don't know. But look, Bernie and Biden started out with 100% name recognition in this election. My campaign manager, first ever African-American male campaign manager of a major campaign, said to me, um, you, know, you know, only about 50% of black people even know who you are. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, everybody knows who Biden is. I have elder relatives of mine, black folks, who are like, I like Joe Biden. He was Barack Obama's person. And and so that's going to be there for a while. God bless him, because I like Joe Biden. The guy swore me in. He was uh, Barack's wingman. I just think that we really should think about if your big issue is beating Donald Trump, please think about who is going to put together the coalition mm-hmm. that had record turnouts in 08 and 012. Those that that coalition, they call it some people call it the Obama coalition. I don't. I call it the Rainbow Coalition. We need to make sure that our party has the leader that's not the safe. Remember, you and I both grew up walk by by faith, not by fear. If we make fear-based decisions and go to look for the safe candidate, we will not do what every election of our lifetime and before from Kennedy to Carter to Clinton to Obama, these young dynamic leaders who talked about the future, who can inspire the fullness of, of our base. And I want to give you one data point just to drive this home. Chris Christie in 2013 had a choice. He had a special election for Senate. Oh, yes. It would have made sense to put it right on his elect, would have saved the state of New Jersey millions of dollars too. But he, you know what, his, I think his point was, let's get the senator down there as quickly as possible. So he moved my election up three weeks before his on a Wednesday in October. So we literally had to like educate voters. <laughs> okay, vote for me coming up this week. Okay, I'll see you on Tuesday. No, it is a Wednesday election. And the only name on the ballot was mine and my opponents. The African-American vote during that off election cycle in the state of New Jersey was bigger than the population represented. It was over 13% of the electorate was black. Three weeks later, on a normal election with local elections, I mean, there were were contests all up and down the ballot. It shrunk down to around 9%, the African-American turnout. 
I know we are going to energize if I am the nominee of this party. And then the other group that I know I can energize because you look at the state of New Jersey, it is suburbs on steroids. We are the state that is a suburban state. That's the next group that we have to be able to win. If you want to know the demographics I do well in, it's minority voters, all minority voters, young voters, and and women voters. And that suburban women are another really critical uh, a part of our electorate. And so then you must be thrilled by the results that came out of Kentucky in the Kentucky governor's race, because it looks as though the counties that flipped had voted for President Trump or voted for the, the Republican incumbent four years ago and flipped entirely the suburbs outside of Cincinnati, yes. Louisville. Um, so I'm, is, I'm, that, is that where that last uh, answer is coming from? Absolutely. Suburban? Yeah. And in my state, I saw it. We went when I first got to the Senate in 13, there was six, six or our House delegation from from uh, New Jersey was six Republicans, six Democrats. It's now 11 one. And we won all of these normally suburban Republican districts, moderate Republican suburban districts flipped dramatically towards Democratic candidates. But I want to I want to say this very pointedly. They were moderate Dems. Mikey Sherrill, Josh Gottheimer, Tom Malinowski are all moderate Dems. And so this is the next thing I want to say. I hear this all the time. Oh, the Democratic Party, are we going to choose a left wing or a more moderate person? And I just smile through that. It is not the tyranny of the or. It's got to be the liberation of the and. It's got to be both moderates and uh, progressives. We've got to have a candidate that can appeal to that minority base and to people on both, if you want to call it, both sides of the Democratic Party. I, I get angry when I, I challenge my friends who say that. If if Bernie Sanders is the person or Elizabeth Warren, I can't vote for them. And I'm like, I will come to your house and make you vote. <laughs> no, and you, you, you literally will yeah, go yes, to somebody's I, I house. Or I hear you the driveway first. Or, but or, they, <laughs> or, or I, hopefully it's not snowing in, in, in November, <laughs> but it has. Um, and, but the other, the other, the, but then I hear the exact opposite. I hear people say, well, if Biden's the candidate, people who are in that progressive wing, I can't. No, I'm sorry, Democrats. No, we we need to have everybody, all hands on deck. And that's why being one of those candidates that can appeal to the full breadth of the Democratic Party and, by the way, appeal to moderate suburbs um, is really, really critical in this election. And that's, again, my this is my pitch to the to right now is is let's get somebody who can activate, engage, excite core parts of our party like African-Americans that can be appealing to people who are progressives and who are moderates, who find a way to get this country back together again. And, and that's, that's another thing that I'm trying to remind voters of at this point. Have you talked to President Obama? I talked to him in the run-up to the announcement. I have not talked to him since then. What advice did he give you? First of all, he gave me a lot of very practical advice that is really good. President Obama is has been funny in my life. I still remember it was the middle of a summer. I can't remember. It was 15, 16. It was the Iran anti-nuclear deal. It was being debated. And he calls me up to talk to me about it. And he's like, what are you doing? I go, Ugh. so August recess, I'm writing my book. And he's then he just unleashes on me with all this very pragmatic advice on, on, writing, that, a on writing a book. <laughs> that was literally to the point where I was like, maybe I should be writing this down because it's so sound. <laughs> and, and so I just laughed because he said something to me when we were talking about the run-up. He says, let me tell you how to save your voice <laughs> in Iowa in February. And he just gave me all this like kind of very tactical advice about how to, how to endure, how to campaign, how to keep your health. He's a, he's a pragmatic thinker, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did tell me larger than that. Look, he's he's not getting he's not putting his fingers on the scale in this election. He does think there might come a point where states people in the party have to emerge, where somebody has definitely lost, but they're holding on till the end and can can threaten the party. So oh, meaning he pushed that person like get, convinced. I, he them didn't to say leave, that explicitly to me, the but the person to leave the field. He led me to believe to understand that no, when it's clear there's a winner, but somebody might be trying to. Do things that divide our party. I think he understands that unity is so important in this election that we can't let people for their own individual reasons undermine the the united strength of the Democratic Party going up against Donald Trump. We have one shot to make him a one-term president. And I will be one of those people. You've seen me on the debate stage that will not tolerate the kind of things that, that will divide our party in ways that are 
um, uh, uh, weakening to us in the final fight against Donald Trump. Uh, so let's talk some some issues here. And right now within the party, there's been this battle over Medicare for all and whose plan is the better plan. And right now, Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren, she's got this plan. And I would love to hear your view as to whether her $34 trillion Medicare for all plan is realistic. I mean, I'm all for aspirational goals and things, but can she pull this off without, say, raising taxes on the middle class? So let, let me just pull the aperture back for a second, because this is a frustrating debate to me. And and it's frustrating, first of all, because we always start from the perspective of how you're going to pay for a plan and don't start with the realization that, that, again, I love that we're having this conversation in Newark. This healthcare system we have right now, we cannot afford. We are closing on spending one of every $5 we spend in America is on healthcare and we get really, really bad results. So we're paying more than any other country and are getting really crappy results We're having Americans still declaring bankruptcy all over the place. In my neighborhood, you have people that are rationing their insulin, which ultimately is more expensive to us because they end up in hospital emergency rooms. We have a system that's so expensive, but yet we incentivize people not to go to the doctor because you're going to have to go pay your copay and people want to put that off until again, it becomes really serious. We cannot afford this system that we have right now. We need to rationalize it. And so if you're going to ask me, if we're going to step back and be honest, and I've challenged people who are against Medicare for all to say, if you were going to design a system in this country that delivered efficient and effective care to everyone, you would design a single payer system, period. That's why I'm on Bernie's bill. Because if I, I was talking about this when I was mayor. My staff showed me tweets in 2012 about how broken this system is and how much a single payer system would be better. Now. Back to your question, which I think is really important. You now have Democrats on a debate stage. I've been there for four debates now, watching Democrats attacking Democrats over a healthcare system that demonstrates Elizabeth's problem, my problem, all the people who believe in a single-payer system is if you can't get 10 Democrats on a stage to agree, you ain't going to get the 47 Democrats in the Senate to agree on it either. (laughs) Joe Manchin, Tester, I could go through the people that are not Mm going to support that. Which means let's now have a different conversation. The goal of my life in healthcare is to get to a point where every American has healthcare as a right. And as long as I can, I'm going to fight to advance uh, the ball towards that direction. When I was mayor, we made opening up FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, uh, driving down prescription drug costs when I was mayor. I will do everything I can when I was mayor as a senator to drive down costs and expand coverage. Well, whoever the next senator, the next president is, they are going to have to be somebody who can cobble and battle together the coalitions to move the ball down the field to make healthcare more affordable. And by the way, Obama tried to do things that he couldn't do because he couldn't get Democrats to agree. For example, we were one vote away from lowering Medicare cover, Medicare eligibility to 55. That would have been a massive change and advancement. And the vote he fell short on was a Democratic senator who decided not to vote for it. So I'm just a pragmatist, and I'm not going to make perfect the enemy of the good when I've come up in a community here where people need desperately need more good. And we need to start talking about what are the realistic steps in a divided Democratic Party on this issue to get millions of more Americans coverage that actually works, because a lot of folk have insurance coverage that ain't mm-hmm. going far enough. So I'm going to be the guy that tells you what the end zone is, everyone having coverage. I think it's got to be a single payer, but also tells you very practically that, that when I have unions, I had a big union in Nevada, sat down with me and said, we are not for Medicare for all. We will fight you over that. Well, yeah, because they negotiated their benefits. Yes. So let's just have, why are we tearing each other down when everybody on that debate stage, every one of us believes in everybody in America having good health insurance. We all agree on the basic broad strokes that every American should be covered. And now we're trying to give uh, Donald Trump uh, and the Republicans who don't want us to have Medicare. They literally are work, uh, pre-existing conditions. There's a court case right now where they're trying to tear away people's uh, protections against uh, insurance companies that want to deny you coverage because you have a pre-existing condition. So we're right now creating an environment where it is and I, again, nobody's bigger, bolder, aspirational than I am. And that's why I tell people, this is the end zone for me. 
But we need to start having a conversation about how we're going to advance coverage, especially not just against Donald Trump, who's going to try to call us socialists and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But what can unite Democrats in power right now, which include those moderates that won in the suburb here in New Jersey that I think are incredible representatives that we need to get on board with whatever the next evolution of healthcare is in America. I'm going to bring the biggest, boldest possible next evolution that can drive down costs and expand coverage. And it, and it, I don't know what it's going to look like. Will it look like a massive public option? Will it be dropping down Medicare eligibility? I can tell you for sure it's going to have prescription drug battle. I'm going to drive those costs to the floor for Americans so that they don't have, right over the Canadian border, insulin costs one-tenth of what they are here. That Those days are gone if I'm president of the United States. But I think the mantra should be a unifying mantra right now on healthcare that we need to go as far as we possibly can in the most united fashion possible to drive down costs and expand coverage for Americans. You know, what pundits love to, to talk about, which drives me crazy, there's always this, this idea that the party has swung too far to the yes. left. It swung too far to the left. And when I think of the issues that people point to as the party swinging too far to the left, the American people are actually, if anything, the Democratic Party is catching up to the American people. Yes. So Thank people you for... want health care. Yes. People want gun control. Uh, people want all sorts of things where the Democratic Party... I mean, if the Democratic Party is swinging to the left, then what does that say about the American people? Has the Democratic Party swung to the left or is the Democratic Party where the American people are, in your view? I I think that on issue after issue, we are where the American people are. So from climate change to gun safety to a a fair tax system, I I think we are where the party party is. I just want to, to communicate in many ways differently. Like I was having this conversation the other day, like with my staff, even like if I go on another debate stage where the only thing we talk about is taxes on millionaires, which are right now there's offensive loopholes for millionaires. I mean, we carried interest, the highest marginal tax rate. Here's one that that Elizabeth Warren's 2% tax on wealth countries have tried that have walked away from it. You want to talk about ways to get the same revenue, start taxing capital gains as ordinary income. Why should somebody who buys a Picasso one year, it's worth a million dollars, and then the next year they sell it for $10 million, be taxed at a lower rate than the people in my neighborhood that are going out sweating for their income? That actually would bring in a tremendous... So, But if all we're talking about as a Democratic Party is... is, And by the way, that's urgent, and I'm going to do those things. But we don't need to just start talking about taxing millionaires. Let's talk about, and I can walk you around my neighborhood, about getting a pathway to creating more millionaires. I want to just not tax wealth appropriately and fairly, but I want to create wealth. Fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in this country are women of color, and they want to become wealthy, and God bless them. That's the American dream. It's the American dream. So we need to be the party for everyone, for dreams and aspirations. And that's why I want to talk about the business accelerators we did here in Newark, the, the business incubators, the ways to give more people a pathway to create wealth and create opportunity, because we want to make sure that that person who has a dream to start a business like Vonda up the street, African-American woman, we helped open a restaurant. You go talk to her employees, some of them uh, from all different kind of backgrounds who are getting excited about the job opportunities they have in their own neighborhood. I want to be the party that talks about opportunity because the wealth gap is big and needs to be addressed. But the bigger gap I'm concerned with is the opportunity gap that goes on in this country that will ultimately create more wealth for more people because new business starts in America are going down. We need to be the party of innovation, the party of entrepreneurs, the party of opportunity, the party of the future. That's what I want to talk about. Can we talk about guns now? Um, You said in your announcement speech when you announced you were running, you said, We will pass universal background checks. We will ban assault weapons and close the loopholes that allow people who should never have a gun to get one. What will you do if you are the president, but Mitch McConnell is still majority leader of the Senate? How realistic is that dream there, that goal? How realistic is that? I'm so excited that you brought that up because this, again, gets to what the core of my running is, is about the coalitions between us that are necessary to make big changes possible. Right up the street, one of my favorite, I talked about this in my Iowa speech this past weekend, trying to make the explicit point that Frank Hutchins, who is a street 
in the South were named after him, was our most mighty tenant leader. Uh, he, he, humble man, wouldn't fill up a room in the way that you would picture somebody who used to led the longest rent strike in this city back in the 70s against the public housing authority. But one of the first times he sort of admonished to me was in these long tenant meetings in the basement of, I think it was actually Brick Towers, where it just crowded. Everybody wanted to talk on the microphone. I was there as a young lawyer trying to get a case to file against a slumlord who would eventually go to federal jail for his crimes. And I remember sort of saying to him, oh, God, that meeting was so long. It went, it went on like forever. And I had everything I needed probably within the first hour. And he admonished me so gently, but just talking about we're not here just to repair the buildings. We're here to repair community. And in fact, the way we repair the buildings is to first repair community. Because the bonds that between us, that's the power and strength we need to take down that slumlord. We in America agree on so many issues that should be a layup Universal background checks should be a layup when 86% of NRA members believe in universal background checks. And the reason why we're not getting it done is because we're not creating those coalitions that we need. So let me tell you, the longest filibuster, you want to talk about Mitch McConnell and filibustering legislation, the longest filibuster in Senate history, I almost want to find something to filibuster just to break this record, is a, a racist rant by a guy named Strom Thurmond who was blocking civil rights legislation. Former senator of South Carolina. Right. And we yet we overcame that filibuster because we made it happen. Bigger, bolder coalitions, strengthening the bonds between us that overcame the impossible filibuster of, of, of this person. This gun legislation, to me, the president, and again, we just had Obama. I mean, he brought me to tears after some of these horrible mass shootings, when he sang Amazing Grace. Oh, please. That's one of the greatest moments, moments in politics. In politics, yeah. Of our lifetime, right? Yeah. Yep. And yet we got nothing passed. And so I want to tell you right now I ain't as good looking as Obama. <laughs> I don't have the hair that he has. I can't sing as well as he has, even though I do sing, which is probably a, a deficit. I'll come back to that. I sing badly. Um, it, uh, uh, my girlfriend tolerates me as somebody who is actually a great singer. My point is, is we're not, we, it's not the charisma of the president. It's not the ability to inspire sort of uh, emotional uh, like outpouring. I think I wept watching that moment. Um, so remember, this is not about me. It's got to be about we. It's about the president that can actually activate the kind of coalitions to overcome these filibusters. So I just want you to know, under my presidency, we're going to win this battle because I'm fighting in a different way. And I'm warning everybody. I say this very openly on the campaign now. I am warning you. I'm putting a warning label on. Support another person in the nomination if you don't accept this warning. If I get elected president of the United States, I'm going to ask more from you than any president has ever asked from you before. Because we don't get things done because we have presidents that lead the way. We get things done when we as a people are activated and engaged in a way we've never been before. My grandparents told me about beating the Nazis, and neither of them were in Europe. But you know what? Here in America, everybody had a victory garden, war bonds. We mobilized. Change will not happen. The best leaders I know are leader, the leaders like King. Actually, I shouldn't even give King credit. James Bevel, Dorothea Cotton, or, or around him, who pulled King into doing demonstrations in Birmingham that actually didn't have people watching and say cheering for them on the sidelines. Those demonstrations in Birmingham pricked the consciousness of this country. These, those people put their bodies, they literally put their bodies on the line. Yes. And what happened after that, after those demonstrations in 12 days, I think the exact number, segregation fell in Birmingham because everybody got on a bus, a train, a plane from Dick Gregory to Joan Baez to people in the suburbs. Thousands of people pouring into Birmingham to join the fight, and it fell. The impossible, implacable segregation now, segregation forever, fell within 12 days when the American public were activated and organized. I'm going to bring the fear of God into those Republican senators or congresspeople who are not representing their constituents, who the majority of their constituents want this legislation. They're more afraid of the NRA and the corporate gun lobby than us. And that's what's going to ultimately change this, this debate. And it's not going to be a secondary issue for me. As a guy who still has had very personal experiences in the community which we're sitting right now, shrines of dead children, more funerals than I care to think about, 
one instance trying to stop a kid from bleeding to death. I'm going to, this is a central issue. I'm going to swear an oath as your president to defend the American people. I mean, the number one cause of death in this community I'm living in right now is murder. More people have died in the last, in my lifetime than have died in every war we've ever fought in from the Revolutionary War till now. This will be a central issue for me. We, not me, we are going to tear down uh, the barriers to passing common sense gun safety. This will be one of those moments, like overcoming uh, Strom Thurmond's filibuster, where those people who are trying to block this will find themselves on the wrong side of history, and they will be swept aside by the demands of the American people. Now, just now, you sort of alluded to the fact that the issue of gun violence is not abstract for you, as you just said, you you know, tried to stop someone from bleeding. But there's a, and I don't know if, if this is the same person, but Shahad Smith. Yeah. Um, who is someone you knew from when you lived in Brick Towers. Yes. So you n- knew him a long time. Yes. And then you moved out of Brick Towers and he was a neighbor yeah. of yours. And then it was a year and a half ago, March of 2018, he was murdered. Right on this block. Right up the street. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was with an assault weapon. Yes. The cops, uh, the police officers told me, I mean, people don't know the force, four times the force of a handgun. And the way they described to me is that his, he wasn't shot. They said his head exploded. And he was part of a group of kids. And I get very emotional when I think about this because one of them, the first one of them to die was, was a kid named Hassan Washington. These were children that would congregate in the lobby of the building I lived in. So I would come home at night and see this crew of this incredible group of kids. And I, I saw myself in them. Hassan, I would remark that he was just like my dad. Same kind of sharp wit. He was sort of the leader of the crew. And I still remember when, I, when alarm bells went off for me is when I came in one night and I smelled marijuana. Now, I smell marijuana in lots of places at Stanford and never made me fearful of the, for the lives of, of the, my fellow Stanford students. But I knew that these kids had no margins for error in a life where every black boy in low-income communities walks on the line and is a very thin line if you're not going to be dragged down by your leading causes of death, by your likelihood to go to prison. And this was probably one of my biggest failures, I think, of my life. It's a reason why... When Rosario and I landed, we went out with our my mentees. Is because I won't I won't let this happen again. I made a commitment to those kids. Like I said to them around that time, hey, let's go deeper. Like I said, let's start hanging out a little bit more. And I went out to the movies with them. I still remember the first film I asked. I, I let them choose, which was the mistake. It never happened again. <laughs> they, they took me to see Saw Two. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, yes. <laughs> I couldn't even get through Saw One. I know. Even and, opening credits. But this is, this is one of my, I think, sins where I made commitments to them about mentor relationships. I remember we were at Andros Diner, Diner Down the Road, and I, and I brought other friends of mine together because I wanted to create mentoring relationships for them. And I asked them all what they wanted to do, what their dreams were. And I still remember one of the boys just telling me I want to own a car repair shop. And I'm like, these are, these are dreams that my networks, we can do about, but Literally right after that time, I was running for mayor. I got very busy and didn't follow through immediately. In the back of my mind, I said, hey, I'm going to be mayor. I'm going to be able to be there for I'll be there for every kid. And I still remember I would come home late at night from campaigning like I do now, and they would still be in that lobby, and they would greet me. They would cheer me. They would promise me they would vote for me, even though they were too young to vote. <laughs> I get elected, and... Um, there's death threats all my life, so I have now police officers around me all the time, stationed in brick towers, safe as those projects ever were. But you and I, when we were in high school, we wouldn't want to hang out in a lobby with a police officer there, so I don't see them anymore. But I get immediately, I'm trying to save the city. Like It was August, it was, excuse me, July when I swore my oath. I won in May, sworn in July, murder rate spiking as I'm going into office. I'm running around the city just 24-7 trying to hold the city together as we make bring in reforms. But one of the first murders was we're, we're on uh, uh, Longworth, a few blocks down Court Street. There was a murder. I, I show up on the scene as I was doing all the shootings I could in those early days. Body covered up, another one being loaded on the ambulance. I'm embarrassed to say I barely affirmed the, the humanity on the sidewalk because I was too busy ministering to the living. And I'm it's right in front of a senior home. I'm giving a street-level sermon talking about the things we're going to do. And then I get home that night to steal a couple hours of sleep, and I'm going through my BlackBerry, and I see the name on the murder report 
that it was Hassan Washington, the kid that reminded me of my dad. And this was a moment in my life where I, I tell you, Newark, I've broken a number of times. And this was one of those moments where the shame settled in because I knew my dad's story. My dad was one of those kids, single mom, poor. Him and Hassan were so similar when I started scratching at the surface of his life and my dad's life. Both raised for a period with by their grandparents, both below the poverty line. My dad, the community, saved him. They got him on track to go to college. They took collections. They sheltered him, and they got him off to college. And in my dad's life, you know, having two boys like me, Hassan, God put my dad right in front of me, gave me a chance to pay this forward, and I got too busy. His funeral was packed. We were all piled in on top of each other, moaning and crying, holding on to another American reality that happens every day, another boy in a box. And I still remember having this chilling moment where I realized we're all here for his death. Where were we? Where was I for his life? And so for me, this is haunts me still. Now that more of Hassan's crew have died, most of that crew is dead. Um, these were these are good boys, and I'm. They're better than me. These are, these are kids who deserve the best of America, and they've seen the worst of it. And so, for me, this is why I fight, because this country is better than this, and these these boys deserve deserve us. Every kid in America does. And so gun violence, public education, all the things that should be there for everyone, um, we're, we're going to get a country where it's, where it's, where it, it, it's that. If the last breath of my body, I will fight to make sure that any boy born in any circumstances, rural to urban, that we become a country that is the most fertile soil for, for children's genius. And we don't lose kids like we're losing every day in America right now to drug addiction, opioid overdoses, violence, or just schools that are defunded that don't serve their genius. You know, in response to the shooting in El Paso, I mean, that Beto O'Rourke had the same emotional reaction um, then that you're having right now. Um, that people can hear, but I'm seeing with my own eyes um, that it, as you said, it breaks your heart what happened to Hassan and what's still happening to people in this community and communities around the country. And I'm just wondering for Beto, it was to demand a mandatory, what was it? Buyback well, of I mean, a, assault said, weapons. He said, we're going to come to your house and take your weapons. I mean, that was that was not constructive. And so I bring that up because I wonder, the, the problem that we have, at least to my mind, in this conversation, to put it charitably, about gun violence and so-called gun control is the divide. How would you, or how do we, or how can we bridge the divide between the folks who honestly and truly and strongly believe in the Second Amendment and their right to own whatever gun they want, an assault weapon, and those who want those weapons banned because of the lives and the communities destroyed by them, by the community that we're sitting in in right now, Jahad Smith, blown apart by an assault weapon. How do you bridge those two very real... Right, but the bridge is already already there. Uh, You know, we frame this debate in the way the corporate gun lobby wants us to frame it. Let me tell you right now, assault rifles, horrible, horrific. They're two, three percent of the gun violence in this country. And by the way, majority of Americans think we should ban these. So we're getting into this debate about how do we recover these banned weapons and missing the larger, not even debate anymore. If we had federal gun licensing, anybody who wants to buy law-abiding citizens who wants to buy a gun can still buy a gun. 
everybody can drive a car. Licensing doesn't stop people from driving cars. It just makes sure that we're a safer country as a result of it. Well, you know, gun licensing is the same thing. And the states that have done it, Connecticut did it, had a 40% drop in gun violence, 15% drop in suicides. So if we get this whole debate becomes about assault rifles and how do we recover them if we make them illegal versus the wide berth of what we agree on that would save lives in Newark, save lives in America, make it safer to go to your synagogue or your church. That's why I'm saying we need a president that can get us beyond an impotency of empathy and get us to a more courageous empathy for one another, to understand that the people who are trying to divide us are, that's the enemy of the people right now when you try to divide us falsely. And I know this, the last, uh, classified report that I read was in the SCIF in the Senate. And it was the Russians' efforts, like what were the Russians doing to undermine our elections? One of their strategies is to try to make us hate each other. They use our social media platforms to try to accentuate the hate. They win when we are divided against each other. Guns are an issue overwhelmingly we agree on as Americans. Let's do the things that 75% or more Americans agree on. And the people who have weapons for self-defense, the people who have weapons for hunting, the people who have weapons just because they like to go out and shoot, all those folks are going to be okay. But the reality of me that I deal with in Newark when I was mayor, I couldn't find one. Actually, I found only one instance where the person who used a gun to murder another person was acquired legally. In other words, the overwhelming is how easy it is for people who do not qualify to purchase guns in this system to buy weapons. It is the boyfriend loophole for somebody who has been convicted of domestic stalking uh, uh, can still go out and buy a weapon. It is the terrorist loophole, which someone who's on the terrorist no-fly list can go to a gun show and go up to a casual seller and fill up a trunk full of weapons. Uh, it is the the internet loopholes. All of these things that most people know, it's insane that if you are someone who is suspected of terrorist activity or formerly shot up somebody, that you can still go out and get guns. That's what we need to do. This is a moment in America where I am going to be, God willing, the president that reminds us that the lines that divide us are nowhere near as strong as the ties that bind us. If I got up and saying, okay, I'm going to do this stuff. And by the way, it's very progressive, even though I know we don't call it that, that if, if 75% or more of Americans agree on something, let's just do those things. Come on, raise the minimum wage, paid family leave, uh, affordable preschool. I could go through the things that 80, 90% of us agree on. Let's fight those battles. And you know what? Maybe my second term, let's pick up some questions about the stuff that maybe we don't all agree on, but we should still be doing. I can't have you sit here without asking you about impeachment and about a president who you're, one, hoping you can keep from having a second term. Yes. But we're also, he's involved in a process that could result in his being removed from office. And I'm just wondering if you're worried that impeachment will be a drag on the Democratic campaigns in general, and yours in particular. I mean, you, Harris, Warren, who am I? Uh, uh, um, I'm leaving somebody Sanders. Out. Sa- oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Bennett. Senator Sanders, Senator Bennett, you're all members of the jury if the impeachment articles come over to the Senate. How much of a, of a problem is that going to be? So I don't know and I don't campaign. care. I, and I mean that very seriously. I swore an oath, man. I, and I took it very seriously. On Halloween, six years ago, it was a special <laughs> quite election. A day. Yeah, quite a day. <laughs> Trick or treat, I don't know. Uh, uh, Joe Biden had me raise my hand. He swore me in as United States Senator. And I swore an oath to protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. Not only do it if there's not an election going on. No matter what, I will do my job as United States Senator. That's what I told New Jersey I would do. That's what I told this country I would do. And I'm going to do it. Whatever effect it has, it's going to have. The, the zenness of, uh, that I learned from Newark, God bless you guys, from going through more storms and crises. And, you know, I, I took over a city that tumbled into a global recession that was known for crime and corruption. You know this. I think I'm the first mayor that has not been indicted and convicted of something since the 1960s. And who left without serving two decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, we, had, we, had, we had dynastic mayoralities in this city. I've seen crises before. What you need to do, we're in a crisis right now. But I need to focus on what I can control, 
every day and leave the rest to the universe. And so this is a moment where I'm going to do my job. And however this plays out, I know that I've done my duty. Donald Trump has violated his duty. I'm going to do mine. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, the 36th mayor of Newark, Stanford grad, Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School. Come on. Have I left anything? Yes. All-American football player. The older I get, the better I was in sports. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Senator Cory Booker, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.